Welcome to Facts Roundtable, a podcast dedicated to navigating life with food allergies across the lifespan. Presented in a welcoming format with interviews and open discussions, each episode will explore a specific topic, leaving you with the facts to know or use. Information presented via this podcast is educational and not intended to provide individual medical advice. Please consult with your personal board-certified allergist or healthcare providers for advice specific to your situation. Hi, everyone. I'm Caroline Mawasasi, and I am your host for the Fact Roundtable podcast. I am a food allergy parent, advocate, and the founder of the Grateful Foodie blog, and I am FACT's Vice President of Community Relations. Before we start today, I just want to take a moment and thank the National Peanut Board for their kind sponsorship of today's show and for all of their support over the years. With many students returning to classrooms this spring, now is the exact time to work on back-to-school accommodations. To help support this unique return, we're sitting down with Amelia Smith, FACS General Counsel and Vice President of Civil Rights Advocacy to review accommodation basics and any changes or impacts parents need to know regarding the COVID-19 pandemic. And also, just to remind you, please consult with your personal board-certified allergist or local legal professional or even healthcare professionals for advice specific to your situation. Welcome, Amelia. I am always pleased to have you on the podcast, and I'm thrilled to have you back again today. We always walk away with more knowledge and confidence after our discussions with you. Thank you, Caroline. I'm excited to be back. We're going to dive right in now because we've got a lot to cover today. But Amelia, I know you have been actively monitoring and researching the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic, specifically related to directives and guidelines, school closures, and the impact of the CARES Act on the rights of individuals with food allergies. Therefore, taking all of this into consideration and the impact of the pandemic on schools while looking forward, can you bring us up to speed on where we are right now with heading back to school? You know, honestly, Caroline, that is a really interesting situation and question because, of course, nowhere in the country is the same. We have had some schools that never closed or, you know, reopened in the fall and have stayed open and They have not provided virtual or distance learning options for students. We have some students that have been completely virtual and distant since last March. And then we have school districts like our school district here, where you could either choose to be in person or virtual. The situation is completely different everywhere across the country. And that makes this podcast even more important, but it also, of course, makes the situation a little bit fuzzier for everyone. That's really where we are is it's hard to say where we are. Well, it kind of sounds like where we are is where you are. So where I'm sitting in Nevada, it's going to be very different than someone sitting in Mississippi or someone sitting in New York City. Correct. Most definitely. So then let's go a little deeper now and let's talk about the CDC released guidelines for going back to school. Can you just give us like a top level review of what has been revised, and then if there's any area that you think you need to take us a little deeper or areas that you think parents need to know about, just bring that right up. Well, of course, you know, the CDC originally last April came out with their guidelines, March even, of 2020, 
recommending that food be consumed in the classroom instead of in the lunchroom, and also recommending the opening of windows for ventilation and items such as those. Those remain in the CDC guidelines. What has really changed, the CDC has gotten more specific with their guidelines and their toolkit. In addition to the changing of the distancing of students from six feet to three feet, which that poses issues, of course, especially for those children who are milk allergic and younger. You may have an issue with that shortened distance of the recommended seating. They also have really, you know, gotten very specific about cleaning of surfaces. And if food is consumed in the classroom, they are ensuring that contact surfaces, which would mean the students' desks, are washed, rinsed, and sanitized before and after meals, which is great, you know, in our case with children with food allergies, that this is being encouraged, especially for these children. Um, in cases where they're doing meal pickups for distant students or if students are walking through the cafeteria to pick up their food and take it back to the classroom, quote one of the CDC toolkits, it says, ensure the safety of students with allergies and help expedite meal choice by familiarizing students and staff with daily menu options, such as providing menu options in advance or clearly labeled food items with simple menu item descriptions, such as turkey and cheese wrap, carrot sticks, sliced peaches, or other important indicators for food allergies or dietary restrictions. Then it goes on to use examples of top eight allergens, kosher and vegetarian. They're getting more specific in their recommendations, which is great for our case, for our children with food allergies. But really, I mean, the recommendations haven't changed. They're still eating in the classroom and they're still opening windows for ventilation. And they're moving students closer together to allow more to fit into a classroom. So it is very important As we discussed how it's so hard to bring everyone up to speed as to where everything is because everyone's location is going to be individual. Everybody's schools are going to be individual as well because these are just guidelines. They're still CDC guidelines. They are voluntary. They are not mandatory. And so schools still do not have to follow them. So that is also very important to keep in mind that even though the CDC recommends this, your school may not do it. My son finally returned to school after spring break, so mid-March, after being home for 377 days straight. (laughs) Now, our school district allowed us to elect in-person or virtual. So our district has been open since August. But because of my son's participation in a food allergy clinical trial, he could not get sick and remain in the trial. So in order to keep him in the trial and avoid him being dropped, I elected for him to stay virtual until he completed his trial drugs. So we actually have had to go back to school here in just the last month. We have had to sit down and have our 504 meeting and say, okay, this is how different our classroom looks now. Here's the way we are doing things differently. It is an entirely new school for him. He has moved from elementary to middle school this year. So we have the added points of the school wanting to put more responsibility on him in a very unique time. And so it has been very interesting just even for our family to have to go through this process. But the process itself really has not changed. Well, And thank you for bringing up that these guidelines are voluntary because I wasn't fully sure 
you know, we have guidelines that come out and they're called guidelines, but how strictly do schools need to follow them? So they are definitely voluntary and it definitely turns back to the parent, if I have this right, really advocating strongly for the child. Most definitely. Excellent. Thank you for going into details about that. And it's really interesting, too, that you're actually going through this with your own child. So I think that really helps you in relating to the rest of the the country and offering your support. So not that I'm happy you're going through it, but (laughs) I'm appreciating that benefit. Well, you know, even with participating in the clinical trial, I think I learn more every day. by. I think we all do, in fact. And I think that's what's so great about our team, all living with food allergies, is we all bring our personal experiences to the table. And right now, I just happen to be experiencing getting my child back into school. So I can sympathize with parents and what they're going through at this point. So now we're going to move on to the next question here. I feel as if parents are activating a reset button on accommodations since we've been out school for so long. I mean, you were gone for over, what, 370 something days. What basic steps should a parent be taking right now during the springtime to prepare for summer or fall return to school? Pretty much the steps for returning to school mail and making sure your accommodations are in place are pretty much the same steps they would have been pre-COVID. It's going to be contacting your school, contacting your 504 coordinator. Hopefully, most families, if their students stayed virtual, they were able to pretty much leave their 504 plans as they were and did not have to remove some of their food allergy accommodations that they had fought so long and hard for. And so, you know, best case scenario is you contact your 504 coordinator, you get your plan back in place and you slide right back into it and you get right back to it. But that's what we did with my son. He has a 504 not only for his food allergies, but also for his ADHD. So we did have to tweak some of his accommodations for his ADHD for the virtual experience, but I wouldn't let him tweak his food allergy related accommodations because I wanted them in place when we went back in. So what we did is, of course, I contacted the principal and said he's he's ready to come back. And I said, I will contact our 504 coordinator. And she said, no, here's what I want you to do. I want us to find a day. They're supposed to be back on Monday. I didn't realize this because it said that the fourth nine week started later in the week. So I was late, but she was great in saying that she wanted to have a 504 meeting and make sure that everybody was in place and on board before Robert returned to school, which is amazing. It's the first time that I've actually had a school administrator say, hey, let's not start anything until we've had this meeting. Normally, it's me having to throw a fit and saying, okay, well, he may supposed to be back on school on Monday, but he ain't come until we've had our meeting. So that was a very nice turn of events for us this time. So again, you know, just to start out, you contact your school if you already have one. You contact your 504 coordinator. If you don't have one, you can follow the step in the Civil Rights Advocacy Resource Center on the FACT website on how to get a 504 plan, which again would be the same steps. Contact your principal, contact your school counselor, contact the special ed director of your school district to find out who your 504 coordinator is, and then put a request in for a 504 evaluation and accommodation plan. 
Thank you. And for listeners, I'll make sure you have all the web links you need in the podcast notes. So that way, things that Amelia is mentioning today, you can easily just click and find and go. Expanding more on those accommodation, what rights do students have? And then how can parents find information about those rights? Students have the right to a free and appropriate public education, which we know as FAPE. For students with disabilities, such as food allergies, they have to be provided FAPE, which includes the opportunity to equally participate alongside their non-disabled people. Okay, that is a mouthful. And and so where, again, can parents find that information actually written out or in a link? All of this information is in the Civil Rights Advocacy Resource Center of the FACT website. We actually have sections 4504 specifically when you go in the Resource Center and documents on how to request a 504. There are sample request letters. There are sample doctor letters. There are sample accommodations listed there. And then through some of our other links that I have a feeling you'll be posting about civil rights in the 504 area aspects and accommodations, we have a lot of sample accommodations related specifically to the current COVID environment there as well. And that I have found very helpful lately and has been very important to us is with it being spring season and my son not having been in school for so long, he is not only being introduced to the school's ventilation system now, but we're also having to deal with the CDC's recommendation to open windows to increase ventilation. And we've actually had to pull out the card where the CDC says, unless it will cause problems with students with asthma. Because Robert is having terrible terrible allergy and eczema flares right now. And we're off of antihistamines for testings for clinical trial. So we're really having to work around that more than we are as food allergies with him returning to school. Because they are so good at his school about keeping surfaces washed, not sharing items. Each student remains at their desk. And we haven't had a lot of food allergy issues, oddly enough, which is very surprising this year. But by encouraging the extra cleaning, remaining in their own desk, no shared items, and of course the increased hand washing, a lot of what is being put in place in many districts, I'm not saying every district, because of course every district is different, just like every individual student's needs is, are different. But we are seeing some good things, accommodations that we have fought for for years, such as simple hand washing, actually being put in place finally because of the pandemic. So if anything good can come out of this, at least that is coming out of it in many areas across our country. I can see that. I can thoroughly understand that extra hand washing, that extra cleaning. And thank you for bringing up the environmental allergies. I am a sufferer myself, and the open windows is something that really knocks me out. So thank you for bringing that up, just to get that on the radar for our listeners. So now back to those accommodations, how can a parent judge if they're asking for unrealistic accommodations or are they asking for too many or too little? Do you have any tips for helping them kind of find that balance or that middle ground? I have contact with parents across the country asking about specific accommodations and what accommodations they should have and if they're being reasonable or unreasonable. One place I always suggest they start is that list of sample accommodations on the FACT website. Because it's broken down into categories, communication between the school and other students. There's 
accommodations for communications between teachers and substitute teachers and nurses and how, where all that information is supposed to be. There are accommodations on there regarding cleaning of the classroom. There are accommodations on there for field trips. And I know these things that aren't necessarily an issue during COVID at this point. It breaks it down into groups and then it gives you the sample accommodations. And a lot of them may read the same, but they're actually tweet differently for different age groups and children of different responsibility levels and maturity levels. So that is a really good place to start. And of course, there is a huge, huge disclaimer at the top of that list. And that's, I think, is where the the reasonableness or the appropriateness of the accommodations come into place. Because the standard for accommodations is not reasonableness. Is this a reasonable accommodation? Public schools are required to accommodate students with disabilities to the maximum extent necessary. So I even hate using the words reasonable, unreasonable, because reasonable is a term, is a specific legal term used for disabilities in the work environment. So I even hate to use that term. But yes, given that we've explained why reasonableness may not be the appropriate word, I do believe that there are some very unreasonable expectations out there for some parents, unfortunately, that I have to walk them back. I had a parent contact me, and I know you've heard this story a million times before, Caroline, but I had a parent contact me completely and totally bent out of shape and angry and ready to fight the school with the Office for Civil Rights, the Department of Education, because the school wouldn't agree to have every student in the building wash their hands 10 times a day with dial soap and bounty paper towel, because that's what this parent used at home, and she knew that that worked for her son. So I had to really take her back and say, okay, but the pink industrial soap at the school and the brown paper towels work just as well. And especially now in COVID, your student is probably not going to come in contact with the thousands and thousands of students on campus. So maybe if we had everyone in your student's classroom wash their hands you know, when they arrived at any time there might be you know, after snack, before and after lunch, anytime there might be a risk of allergen exposure, then your child should be fine. But I really think it is just tailoring the request that we make for accommodations to our students' specific needs, their, that student's specific environment, and you should be okay. And if the school gives you pushback, the best way to approach it is to go to the school and say, okay, you don't want to give me this accommodation. But let me explain to you why I want this accommodation. The goal is for the child to be in school healthy and happily and actively learning. And this is why I think this accommodation will work. I want the children's hands to be washed anytime they can come in contact with an allergen because my son is hyper reactive, not trace contact or airborne, but he will pick up the allergens, transfer it off of another surface, rub his eyes, and then we've gone into anaphylaxis from that before. And when you explain to them that that's why you want these children to wash their hands immediately from coming in, coming into school from home, because we want to make sure that we don't have allergens on the hand transferring to the doorknobs and the surfaces that are still going to be shared, especially during COVID. When you explain that to the school and then you say, so if we can't do the hand washing, I need you to help me 
you know, we need to put our heads together and come up with an accommodation that's still going to give us the same outcome. If your accommodation is the appropriate outcome, the school's not going to be able to come up with something else. And you're going to eventually end up getting what you want, typically. That is a perfect example that is so relatable. And you just gave us not only guidelines, I'd say, but also just a really nice way to approach it to problem solve it. So thank you very much. That was very eye-opening. Well, thank you, Caroline. I'd, I'd like to remind families that requesting accommodations from schools should not be an inherently adversarial situation. I don't know if of a single person in education who went into education for the money, especially not in a public school district. They may be tired from bureaucratic loopholes and hoops that they have to jump through and the boxes that they have to check, and they may have been doing it for years. So they may have forgotten the reason they got into education at some times. But if we can always bring it back to that individual student, that individual student's needs, and even you know describing your child's most severe reaction to them, tugging at their heartstrings. And if you don't have one of those stories, there are plenty out there that you can use. The best way to deal with a situation with a school district that you feel may be getting adversarial is to remind them of why they're there. But so the best way to get what you want out of the district is to keep it focused on your child and your child's needs and your child's situation and your child's worst reaction or the reaction of another child that you know of anecdotally with the same allergy or a similar allergy. If we can keep the focus on the child and the goal of keeping the child in the school actively, safely, and happily learning, we can still get where we need to get with educators usually. Wise words of wisdom. Thank you so much. That is just incredible information that you've just shared with our families. So now lastly, in speaking to schools, is it best for a parent to communicate through a phone call, through an email, through a written letter? Do you need to have a little bit of a paper trail? You definitely need to have a paper trail, Caroline. I always recommend that you communicate via email with a read receipt option if possible. An email is considered communicating in writing. It is probably the easiest way to communicate with schools now. If you find that you are having a severe problem, you can communicate in writing via the standard normal letter. But if you did that, I would recommend that you send it by certified mail so that you have confirmation that it actually was received. Typically with an email, even if you don't have the read receipt option, you will get an email response confirming that they received your email. So you can confirm that paper trail that way. I always try to advise families that if it's in, you know, in conversation, it didn't happen. You might as well be prepared to hear that that discussion didn't actually happen. So any communication outside of a 504 meeting any requests for 504s, those things do not need to be done face-to-face or via telephone. They do need to be done in some form of writing. So before we wrap up today, is there anything else you'd like to tell listeners? I am here for you. If you have a child that is returning to school or if you were trying to get started on the 504 plan process for next school year, fact, the fact team and me as the vice president of civil rights advocacy We're here for you and feel free to reach out 
please feel free to peruse the Online Civil Rights Advocacy Resource Center. There is a wealth of information there. But if you have looked over it and you still can't find what you need, please feel free to reach out to me. My email address is amelia.smith at foodallergyawareness.org. And I'm sure Caroline can drop that below for you as well. But I am here. Just bear with me. As I said, my son has returned back to school and we're still trying to work out some kinks. But if you send me an email, I will get back to you. But we will discuss your situation individually and we'll put our heads together and see what we can come up with. Wonderful. Well, thank you again, Amelia. This has been just an information-packed podcast. I'm so grateful for your time. I'm so grateful for you as a team member. I enjoy working with you so much, but I just love how fact is just here for our community. And I just appreciate your time. And I look forward to having you on the show again. I can't wait to be back. I can't wait to see you in person. Everything is getting better. And I'm so excited. I agree. I can't wait for our next conference. So thank you, Amelia. Thank you, Caroline. Before we say goodbye, I just want to take a moment to say thank you once again to the National Peanut Board for sponsoring today's highly informative show. Thank you for listening to FACTS Roundtable Podcast. Stay tuned for future episodes coming soon. Please subscribe, leave a review, and listen to our podcast on Pandora, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and Stitcher. Have a great day and always be kind to one another.